Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. Wordinblack.com, Smithsonian Magazine, Anscape, Rolling Stone Magazine, Mother Jones Magazine. And I'm going to start off today's program with a story out of the northwestern Missouri town of Gower. The title is, Who Was Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster, Whose Body Is Now the Center of Attention in Missouri? This is from the CatholicNewsAgency.com website. It was written by Kelsey Wicks and published May 24, 2023. When the Benedictine Sisters of Mary, Queen of the Apostles, exhumed the body of their foundress, Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster, on May 18th, they found the unexpected. Four years after her death and burial in a simple wooden coffin, her body appeared remarkably well-preserved. The news quickly spread on social media about the unusual state of the remains of the contemplative order's African-American foundress, drawing hundreds of pilgrims to the monastery in rural Missouri. Questions remain to be answered about whether an investigation will take place to examine her remains scientifically. In the meantime, many people want to know more about this woman who, at the age of 70, founded the Order of Sisters best known for their chart-topping Gregorian chant and classic Catholic hymn albums. The second of five children born to Catholic parents in St. Louis on Palm Sunday, April 13, 1924, Mary Elizabeth Lancaster, she took the name Wilhelmina when she made her vows, was raised in a deeply pious home. According to the current abbess, Mother Cecilia Snell, and as told in a biography published by her community, the future sister Wilhelmina had a mythical experience at her first communion at age nine, wherein Jesus invited her to be his. She saw something in him at her first communion. Maybe not very clearly, but she saw he was so handsome, the abbess said. He said, will you be mine? And she said, he is so handsome. How can I say no? After this experience, at age 13, her parish priest asked her if she had ever considered becoming a sister. Though she had not, she was quickly moved by the idea and wrote to the Oblate Sisters of Providence in Baltimore seeking permission to join. But she was too young, so she had to wait a little bit longer. The excerpt of the letter reveals a stunning straightforwardness and enduring faithfulness, given that she would die having lived 75 years under religious vows. Dear Mother Superior, it reads, I am a girl, 13 years old, and I would like to become a nun. I plan to come to your convent as soon as possible. I will graduate from grade school next month. What I want to know is whether you have to bring anything to the convent and what it is you have to bring. I hope I am not troubling you any, but I have my heart set on becoming a nun. Of course, I am a Catholic. God bless you and those under your command. Respectfully, Mary Elizabeth Lancaster. Growing up under segregation, Mary Elizabeth was once taunted with the nickname Chocolate Drops as she ran through a white neighborhood on her way home from school. And although she was ridiculed as the lone Catholic among Baptist and Methodist peers, she refused to harbor resentment for her treatment. When the local Catholic high school became segregated under the Christian brothers and public school seemed like her only option, her parents went to great efforts to ensure that their daughter and her schoolmates could continue their Catholic education. 
According to Sister Wilhelmina, as recounted in her biography, her parents, who did not want me to go to the public high school, got to work and founded St. Joseph's Catholic High School for Negroes, which lasted until Archbishop Ritter put an end to segregation in the diocese. She graduated as valedictorian of the schools her parents helped to found and then entered the Oblate Sisters of Providence, one of only two religious orders for black or Hispanic women. She would remain with these sisters for 50 years under vows. During her 50 years in religious life, Sister Wilhelmina witnessed the changes brought by Vatican II and sought to preserve the habit, even constructing one of her own when the sisters stopped producing them. She spent so many years fighting for the habit, said Mother Cecilia, who says Sister Wilhelmina took seriously the idea that the habit signifies the wearer as a bride of Christ. According to her biography, she made a habit for herself, creating parts of the headdress out of a plastic bleach bottle even as her sisters no longer wore theirs. As the Catholic Key reported, her homemade habit may have saved her life when she was working as a teacher in Baltimore and the stiff, high-necked collar known as the gimp deflected the knife of a disgruntled student. Her biography tells of an occasion when a sister passing her in the hallway pointed at the traditional headdress and asked, Are you going to wear that all the time? Yes, Sister Wilhelmina responded and would later quip, I am Sister Wilhelmina. I have a hell of a will and I mean it. After years of trying to get her order to return to the habit, she happened to hear about the priestly fraternity of St. Peter starting a group of sisters. And she had rediscovered the Latin mass and fell in love with it, Mother Cecilia said. And one day she packed her bags. And she's 70 years old and she went to found this community. Just a complete leap of faith. In 1999, with the help of a member of the priestly fraternity of St. Peter, the community began. Over time, it would take on a more contemplative and distinctly Marian charism, with a special emphasis on praying for priests. In her proposal for a new community, Wilhelmina says she wanted to return to regular observance, something she petitioned for during the general chapter of the Oblate Sisters of Providence, the wearing of a uniform habit the surrendering of all monies to a common bursar, the obeying of lawful authority in all departments, the guarding of enclosure and of times and places of silence, and the living together in authentic fraternal life, she wrote. In short, in her new community, she imagined a return to the ordinary discipline of religious life. The new community, which began in Scranton, Pennsylvania, followed St. Benedict in his rule and chanted the traditional divine office in Latin. In 2006, the community accepted an invitation from Bishop Robert Finn to transfer to his diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, in Missouri. In 2018, their abbey, Abbey of Our Lady of Ephesus, was consecrated with Mother Abbess Cecilia as the first abbess with Sister Wilhelmina under her authority. In 2019, seven sisters left the abbey to establish the order's first daughter house, the Monastery of St. Joseph in Ava, Missouri. Today, the sisters continue to lead lives of silence and contemplation following St. Benedict's rule. They partake in the extraordinary form of the Mass and use the 1962 monastic office with its traditional Gregorian chant in Latin. Sister Wilhelmina is remembered for her love of Our Lady even in the last years of her life when she was suffering from fragile health. Regina Trout, a former postulant who cared for Sister Wilhelmina and is now married with children and a lecturer in biology at Purdue University, Fort Wayne, recalled seeing her visibly moved. Whenever you would talk to her about Our Lady, 
You could just see that spark. She loved Our Lady so much, and that came through so strongly, she said. Sister Wilhelmina's last conscious words, O Maria, sung two days before her death as part of the hymn O Sanctissima, were a reflection of her deeply Marian piety as well as the charisma of the chart-topping music that glorifies God that the Benedictine Sisters of Mary are known for. She loved our Blessed Mother, Mother Cecilia said. That's what she would tell everybody coming here. Pray the rosary. Don't forget to pray the rosary. Love the Blessed Mother. She loves you. There are two photographs that go along with this story. The first is a picture of Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster in her white and black habit. She's wearing glasses and smiling at the camera. The caption reads, Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster, whose body was discovered apparently incorrupt, founded the Benedictines of Mary, Queen of the Apostles. The next photograph shows the exhumed body of Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster. She's dressed in her black and white habit. Her hands are holding rosary beads, and you can see in the photograph, and you can see in the photograph the hands of people that are visiting the monastery in rural Missouri touching Sister Wilhelmina. The caption reads, A pilgrim venerates the incorrupt body of Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster on May 20th, 2023. Lancaster was recently exhumed in Gower, Missouri. That was the article, Who was Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster, whose body is now the center of attention in Missouri? It was written by Ketsy. It was written by Kelsey Wicks, published May 24th, 2023, and I found it at the catholicnewsagency.com website. The next reading I have for you deals with the military. It's from Mother Jones Magazine and it's motherjones.com website. The title is, Fort Bragg Becomes Fort Liberty Ditching Its Confederate Namesake. It was written by Pema Levy and published June 3, 2023. Fort Bragg, one of the largest military bases in the country, officially became Fort Liberty on Friday, one of the first of nine military bases in the South that will ditch their Confederate namesakes. The renaming effort got underway after the murder of George Floyd sparked a reassessment of and backlash against the country's memorials to the Confederacy. Congress passed a requirement to rename the bases, part of a larger defense bill overriding the veto of then-President Donald Trump. The Biden administration has approved new names for the bases. A commission is also tasked with renaming other military assets such as buildings, ships, and streets. All nine bases were built in former Confederate states during the Jim Crow era, according to the Washington Post. Fort Bragg was named in honor of Braxton Bragg, a Confederate general who was relieved of command after losing the battle for Chattanooga in 1863, though he remained active in the rebel cause, serving as an advisor to Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Fort Liberty is the only one of nine bases renamed for an idea. The others take on the names of individuals, including women and people of color. Virginia's Fort A.P. Hill, named for a Confederate general, will be renamed in honor of Mary Edwards Walker, an abolitionist and suffragist and the first female surgeon during the Civil War. 
Fort Lee, named for Confederate Army Commander Robert E. Lee, will become Fort Gregg Adams, named for two black officers. Arthur J. Gregg joined a segregated army during Jim Crow and rose to become a three-star general. He is still alive today at 95. Charity Adams led the first unit of black women on an overseas tour during World War II. That was the article, Fort Bragg Becomes Fort Liberty, Ditching Its Confederate Namesake. It was written by Pema Levy and published June 3, 2023 at motherjones.com. The next reading on today's program is an obituary from Rolling Stone magazine and its rollingstone.com website. The title is Tina Turner, Queen of Rock and Roll, Dead at 83. It was written by Brittany Spanos and David Brown and published May 24, 2023. The subtitle is Legendary Singer Died Peacefully Wednesday, May 24th After a Long Illness. Tina Turner, the raspy-voiced fireball who overcame domestic abuse and industry ambivalence to emerge as one of rock and soul's brassiest, most rousing, and most inspirational performers, died Wednesday, May 24th at age 83. Tina Turner, the queen of rock and roll, has died peacefully today at age 83 after a long illness in her home at Kuschnach near Zurich, Switzerland, her family said in a statement Wednesday. With her, the world loses a music legend and a role model. A cause of death was not immediately available, though Turner had a stroke and battled both kidney failure and intestinal cancer in recent years. Starting with her performances with her ex-husband Ike, Turner injected an uninhibited volcanic stage presence into pop. Even with choreographed backup singers, both with Ike and during her own career, Turner never seemed reined in. Her influence on rock, R&B, and soul singing and performance was also immeasurable. Her delivery influenced everyone from Mick Jagger to Mary J. Blige. And her high-energy stage presence, topped with an array of gravity-defying wigs, was passed down to Janet Jackson and Beyoncé. Turner's message, one that resounded with generations of women, was that she could hold her own on stage against any man. But Turner's other legacy was more personal and involved a far more complex man. During her time with Ike, a demanding and often drug-addled band leader and guitarist, her husband often beat and humiliated her. Her subsequent rebirth, starting with her massively popular, Grammy-winning 1984 makeover Private Dancer, made her a symbol of survival and renewal. Born Anna Mae Bullock on November 26, 1939, Turner grew up in Nutbush, Tennessee, a rural and unincorporated area in Haywood County, chronicled in her song, Nutbush City Limits. According to Turner, her family were well-to-do farmers who lived well off the business of sharecropping. Still, Turner and her older sister Ruby Aileen dealt with abandonment issues when their parents left to work elsewhere. My mother and father didn't love each other, so they were always fighting, Turner recalled in a 1986 Rolling Stone interview. Her mother first left when Tina was 10 to live in St. Louis. Her father left three years later. Turner relocated to Brownsville, Tennessee to live with her grandmother. After high school, she began working as a nurse's aide in hopes of entering that profession. Frequently, Turner and her sister would head to nightclubs in St. Louis and East St. Louis, where she first saw Ike Turner perform as the band leader of Kings of Rhythm. The 18-year-old became enamored with the guitarist, eight years her senior, and his group's music. 
One night, the drummer passed Turner the microphone when she was in the audience. Ike then invited Turner to be the group's guest vocalist and instructed her on voice control and performance. As Little Ann, she sang alongside Carlson Oliver in Ike Turner's Box Top, which was her first studio recording. In 1958, the same year that Box Top was released, Turner gave birth to her first son, Raymond Craig, with Raymond Hill, the Kings of Rhythm saxophonist. Soon after, Tina moved in with Ike to help raise the musician's two sons after he had broken up with their mother. A sexual relationship ensued, even though Turner told Rolling Stone in 1984 that she wasn't initially attracted to him. I liked him as a brother, she said. I didn't want a relationship. But it just sort of grew on me. Inspired by the movie serial Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, Turner changed her stage name per Ike's request. In 1960, Ike and Turner released their debut single, A Fool in Love. It was an immediate success, reaching the top 30 on the Billboard Hot 100. The next year, they released another single, It's Gonna Work Out Fine, which led to their first Grammy nomination for Best Rock and Roll Performance. The Ike and Tina Turner Review maintained a rigorous touring schedule as part of the Chitlin circuit in the early 60s and became noted for the quality of their spectacle and diverse crowds they could reach in the South. The success and fear came almost hand in hand, Turner told Rolling Stone, specifically noting Ike's fear of losing her following a fool in love. Ike continued to sleep with other women and Tina was aware that his songs were often about his other sexual relationships. She refused to travel and sing his songs at one point. The first time she did so, he began beating her with his shoe stretcher. Yet she stayed with him. I felt very loyal to Ike and I didn't want to hurt him, she told Rolling Stone in 1984. I knew if I left, there would be no one to sing, so I was caught up in guilt. I mean, sometimes after he beat me up, I'd end up feeling sorry for him. I'd be sitting there all bruised and torn and feeling sorry for him. I was just brainwashed? Maybe I was brainwashed. The two married in 1962 in Tijuana. It was Ike's sixth marriage. In 1966, the Turners partook in a now legendary rock TV show, The TNT Show, whose musical director was producer Phil Spector. After signing the duo to his label, Spector produced what he considered his masterpiece, River Deep Mountain High, putting Tina through countless vocal takes. The song wasn't the blockbuster many assumed it would be, but it opened up other doors for Ike and Tina. In 1969, they opened for the Rolling Stones on the band's U.S. tour, then went on to have a crossover hit with a cover of Creedence Clearwater Revival's Proud Mary that, thanks to Tina, went from smoldering to souped up. It won a Grammy for Best R&B Vocal Performance by a group. I loved her version, Creedence Clearwater Revival's John Fogarty said in a statement, It was different and fantastic. In 1975, Tina appeared as the Acid Queen in Ken Russell's grandiose film version of The Who's Tommy. Amid it all, though, the Turner's marriage began to unravel as Ike grew more abusive and more addicted to cocaine. Turner had previously attempted to leave him multiple times and in 1968 was so desperate to part ways with her abusive husband that she attempted suicide. After what she would call one last bit of real violence, Tina fled, literally to a Ramada Inn in Dallas where the couple was playing, and asked her friend, actress Ann Market, for airfare to Los Angeles. Tina stayed with her Tommy co-star as Ike went looking for her. The couple would divorce in 1976. I didn't even know how to get money, she said later. 
I didn't think I'd be able to find a house, but I did. He sent over the kids and money for my first rent because he thought I'd have to come back when that ran out. We slept on the floor the first night. I rented furniture. I had some blue chip stamps that I had the kids bring, and I got dishes. Turner also credited her introduction to Buddhism for giving her the strength to leave. I never stopped praying. That was my tool, Turner told Rolling Stone in 1986. Psychologically, I was protecting myself, which is why I didn't do drugs and didn't drink. I had to stay in control, so I just started searching spiritually for the answer. Despite her recognizable voice and musical accomplishments with her ex-husband, Turner struggled to establish herself as a solo artist. Her first solo record, starting with 1974's pre-breakup Tina Turner's Turns the Country On, failed to spawn any hits and she took the road for eight years to help pay off the debt she incurred from a canceled tour with Ike in an IRS lien. To maintain a profile on a business that seemed to want nothing more to do with her, she played cheesy lounge gigs and appeared on variety shows and game shows like Hollywood Squares. In a shocking story recounted in the recent Tina documentary, one attempt at a new record deal in the 80s almost collapsed when a higher up at the company referred to her with a racial epitaph. Turner's comeback began in 1982 when Heaven 17, the British synth-pop band, recruited her for a remake of The Temptations' Ball of Confusion. The song led to a new record deal for Turner with Capital. Turner's manager, Roger Davies, then suggested that she and Heaven 17's Martin Ware cut a remake of Al Green's Let's Stay Together, which hit the top 30 in the U.S. With that and the support of her friend David Bowie, Turner began recording her Capital debut, Private Dancer. Reflecting on the way she and Davies wanted to integrate synthesizers and more contemporary production touches, they cut songs like What's Love Got to Do With It by British songwriter Terry Britton. Although Turner disliked the demo of the song, she later says she was urged to make it a bit rougher, a bit more sharp around the edges. With that, she reclaimed the song, which spent three weeks at number one, became an MTV staple and rebooted Turner's career in a way that rarely happened for 60s veterans on her level. By refusing to sound retro and showcasing her voice in a way that hadn't been done in at least a decade, Private Dancer introduced Turner and her MTV perfect wigs, stiletto heels, and fishnet stockings to a new younger audience. What's Love Got to Do With It walked away with three Grammys, including Record of the Year and Female Pop Vocal Performance. In another sign of her determination, Turner performed the song live during the telecast despite having the flu. The triumph of Private Dancer was only the beginning of Turner's relaunch into pop culture. The following year, she starred as the villainous Auntie Entity alongside Mel Gibson in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, which included another hit, We Don't Need Another Hero, Thunderdome, partook in the all-star We Are the World session, and commanded the stage at Live Aid alongside Mick Jagger. Thanks to it all, she later wrote, she had enough money to pay off all the debts I had. In 1986, her first memoir, I, Tina, co-written with then-Rolling Stone writer Kurt Loder, was published and became a bestseller. One of the Living, another song she cut for the Mad Max movie, won Best Female Rock Performance Grammy in 1985. Turner had first gone public about her troubled marriage to Ike in a People magazine interview in 1981, but I, Tina, delved deeper. 
The result was not just a best-selling memoir, which arguably set the template for other rock stars to pin theirs, but a book that gave hope to survivors of domestic abuse. And Turner herself helped ensure that domestic violence was addressed in the culture at large. I don't want to depend on a man to give me money, she told Rolling Stone in 1986. I don't want to be afraid anymore. I used to think I had to get married to help me get the things I wanted in life. When I realized I could get those things for myself, by myself, I began to like that feeling. I feel if I can secure myself, I wouldn't have to depend on a man. We would only share love. 1989 brought another multi-platinum album, Foreign Affair, and with it another huge hit, a rendition of Bonnie Tyler's The Best. For Turner, the decade that followed served as an ongoing validation of her career. I, Tino turned into a 1993 movie, What's Love Got to Do With It?, starring Angela Bassett in the title role and Lawrence Fishburne as Ike. I Don't Want to Fight, a new song included on that film's soundtrack, became Turner's last top ten hit. Bassett, who was nominated for a Best Actress Academy Award for her portrayal of Turner, said in a statement following the singer's death, How do we say farewell to a woman who owned her pain and trauma and used it as a means to help change the world? Through her courage in telling her story, her commitment to stay the course in her life, no matter the sacrifice, and her determination to carve out a space in rock and roll for herself and for others who looked like her, Tina Turner showed others who lived in fear what a beautiful future filled with love, compassion, and freedom should look like. Turner went on to win additional Grammys for Better Be Good To Me, the live album Tina Live in Europe, and for her participation in Herbie Hancock's 2007 Joni Mitchell tribute album, River, The Joni Letters, on which Turner sang Mitchell's Edith and the King's Pen. In 1999, Turner released what would be her final album, 24-7, partly produced by the same team who worked on Shares Believe. The album didn't achieve the commercial success of the records that preceded it, but the accolades and recognition continued. In 2005, Turner, along with Tony Bennett, Robert Redford, and others, was awarded a Kennedy Center honor by then-President George W. Bush, with Beyoncé celebrating Turner with a rendition of Proud Mary. Between 2008 and 2009, she embarked on a 50th anniversary tour. Tina, a musical based on her life, premiered in London in 2018 and on Broadway the following year. Adrienne Warren, in the title role, won a Tony in 2020 for Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical. As Turner herself would later say, though, the ongoing retelling of her life story and time with Ike in movies, musicals, and documentaries came with a price. As much as her troubles inspired others, she constantly had to relive them and was always asked about Ike even after his death in 2007. He did get me started and he was good to me in the beginning, she said in the Tina doc. So I have some good thoughts. Maybe it was a good thing that I met him. That I don't know. In 1986, Turner met German music executive Erwin Bach. The two became a couple soon after that. They first lived in Germany before moving to Switzerland. In recent years, Turner suffered a stroke three weeks after their wedding in 2013, then developed intestinal cancer. In light of possible kidney failure, Bach donated a kidney to his wife in 2017. I wondered if anyone would think that Irwin's living donation was transactional in some way, she wrote in her 2018 memoir, My Love Story. Incredibly, 
considering how long we had been together, there were still people who wanted to believe that Irwin married me for my money and fame. Tina was a unique and remarkable force of nature, and her strength, incredible energy, and immense talent, Turner's longtime manager Roger Davies said in a statement to Rolling Stone. From the first day I met her in 1980, she believed in herself completely when few others did at that time. It was a privilege and an honor to have been a close friend as well as her manager for more than 30 years. I will miss her deeply. Reflecting on how she connected to an audience, Turner said to Rolling Stone in 1986, My songs are a little bit of everybody's lives who are watching me. You gotta sing what they can relate to. There are some raunchy people out there. The world is not perfect, and all that is in my performance. That's why I prefer acting to singing, because with acting, you are forgiven for playing a certain role. When you play that same role every night, people think that you are it. They don't think you're acting. That is the scar of what I've given myself with my career, and I've accepted that. That was the obituary. Tina Turner, Queen of Rock and Roll, dead at 83. It was written by Brittany Spanos and David Brown, published May 24, 2023, at rollingstone.com. If you've just turned us on, you're listening to the African American Hour. My next reading is from the sports and culture website, anscape.com. The title is, Black Baseball Getting an Upgrade at the National Baseball Hall of Fame. It was written by Justice Hill and published May 25, 2023. The subtitle to the story is Committee Targeting 2024 to Open Expansion of the Pride and Passion Exhibit. For half a century, black ball players wanted to play in the major leagues, but they had no place for them. So they were left to form a league of their own a league with black owners, black managers, and black ball players who rivaled those in the bigs. Ultimately, it was the only sports league we ever owned, said Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro League's Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. Kendrick would be the first to tell people that black stars shined as brightly as any major league star and they deserved the same recognition. Assimilation might have led to the destruction of their leagues, It shouldn't, however, have led baseball fans to see it as an inferior league. Its story and stars such as Rube Foster, Oscar Charleston, and Josh Gibson deserved the media attention and public adulation that went to Walter Johnson, Joe DiMaggio, or Mickey Cochran. They will soon receive their due, and they'll get it in the place that matters most to fans, the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame officials have embarked on a plan to update their black baseball exhibit called Pride and Passion. They have assembled a five-person committee of Negro League historians and baseball experts to guide the expansion, said John Shestakovsky, vice president of communication and education for the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. I think, from our standpoint, we've been looking at the exhibit that we've had in place for 25 years or so, Shestakovsky said. And knowing that it needed to change, we'd actually had some conversations about how best to go about updating it. I think when MLB did make its change, it just furthered our process a little bit to ensure that we are moving in the right direction. The change that Shestakovsky referenced was significant. In 2020, MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred announced that the statistical records of black baseball would count just like those of major leaguers. 
I've said this on a number of occasions, Kendrick said. What Commissioner Manfred did was what others could have done and didn't do. The MLB and the Hall of Fame operate separately, so what Manfred did had no bearing on the Hall, a nonprofit educational institution, and its decision to paint a broader picture of black baseball. When MLB did make its change, Shestakovsky said, it just further pushed the Hall to ensure it was moving in the right direction. It wanted to build an accurate timeline for black baseball. The Hall of Fame had recognized aspects of black baseball even before its exhibition existed. Recognition of its stars dated to the induction in 1971 of right-hander Satchel Paige, the first Hall electee of the Committee on Negro Baseball Leagues. In its exhibit, the Hall plans to spotlight some of the lesser-known players who shaped the Negro Leagues and its forerunners. For every ball player of Satchel's standing, teams suited up complementary talents such as catcher Ted Double Duty Radcliffe and pitcher Hilton Smith, and boasted forward-thinking owners such as Foster and Gus Greenlee. Their stories need to be told, just as the stories of Monty Irvin, Henry Aaron, Willie Mays, and their careers in the Negro Leagues need a mention beyond what they did in the bigs. The narratives about those stars start in the Negro Leagues, a fact some fans of the game have forgotten, if they ever knew. Shostakovsky said the Hall didn't have the expertise in-house to ensure it told those stories with honesty, thoughtfulness, and authenticity, prompting officials to reach beyond its offices for help. The help the Hall of Fame assembled is made up of Leslie Heafy, Larry Lester, and Rob Ruck, three respected historians who were part of a 2006 committee that selected Mule Suttles, Jose Mendez, Effa Manley, Com Posey, and 13 other figures from black baseball for induction into the hall. The mission of the committee is simple, to show that black people always played baseball. We want to take the exhibition all the way back to the pre-Civil War, back during slavery, said Lester, a co-founder of the Negro Leagues Museum. I mean, we've had that information. It's never been shared. Misconceptions about black baseball run deep. Lester, Heafy, Ruck, Gerald Early, a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, and author Rowan Ricardo Phillip were assigned to consult with the Hall and to correct any historical errors. Committee members went to Cooperstown, New York last week to continue their discussions. The Hall welcomes their willingness to pitch in. Obviously, we need to look outside of ourselves to make sure we're doing this the right way, Shostakovsky said. So we put together two different groups in addition to our internal team, which is pretty expansive when you consider that we're only a staff of about 80 full-time people. The second committee has 40 members, and it includes several Hall of Famers such as Ken Griffey Jr. and Andre Dawson, plus baseball experts such as sports writer Clara Smith and Tony Regans, the chief baseball development officer for the MLB. There are some photographs that go along with this reading. The first shows three baseball players posing with their arms around each other's shoulders and smiling at the camera. One is wearing the uniform of the Pittsburgh Pirates, the other the San Francisco Giants, and the third is wearing the uniform of the Atlanta Braves. The caption reads, National League stars Roberto Clemente, Willie Mays, and Henry Aaron assemble for a victory portrait after the 1961 MLB All-Star Game in San Francisco. The next photograph shows the entrance to the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. There are black pillars extending from the floor to the ceiling, 
and the wood-paneled walls behind them are lined with two rows of plaques honoring those people that are within the halls of the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. The caption reads, Plaques in the main hallway identify inductee classes in the Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum in Cooperstown, New York. And the last picture that goes along with this reading shows a baseball pitcher up on the mound, and he's just released the baseball. He is a right-handed pitcher, and he's wearing a Chicago uniform. The caption reads, Leroy Satchel Page pitches during the Negro American League 29th East-West All-Star Game at Yankee Stadium in New York City on August 17, 1961. That was the story, Black Baseball Getting an Upgrade at the National Baseball Hall of Fame. It was written by Justice B. Hill, published May 25, 2023, and it appeared at the Andscape.com website. The next story is titled, Martin Luther King Jr. Never Said Famous Quote Criticizing Malcolm X. It was written by Christopher Parker and published May 23, 2023 at Smithsonian Magazine, smithsonianmag.com website. In 1965, journalist Alex Haley published an interview with Martin Luther King Jr., the longest he ever gave, in Playboy magazine. The piece famously includes quotes from King that are critical of Malcolm X. I totally disagree with many of his political and philosophical views, at least insofar as I understand where he now stands. I have often wished that he would talk less of violence because violence is not going to solve our problem. And in his litany of articulating the despair of the Negro without offering any positive creative alternative, I feel that Malcolm has done himself and our people a great disservice. Fiery, demagogic oratory in the black ghettos, urging Negroes to arm themselves and prepare to engage in violence, as he has done, can reap nothing but grief. For decades, King's comments have been repeated in history books and classrooms across the country. But now, new research suggests that Haley fabricated them. Journalist Jonathan Eig, capital E-I-G, first noticed something was amiss while conducting archival research for his new biography of King, reports the Washington Post's Gillian Brockle. In Haley's archives at Duke University, Eig found what appears to be an unedited transcript of the interview. Reading through it, he realized that Haley moved certain phrases around and even added in language that King never uttered. The quotes have been changed dramatically. Some of them have been entirely invented, Ike tells PBS NewsHour's Jeff Bennett. And we have been telling the story of the relationship between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X for generations based in part on that quote. According to the transcript, King says, I totally disagree with many of his political and philosophical views as I understand them. I wish that he would talk less of violence because I don't think that violence can solve our problem. And in his litany of expressing the despair of the Negro without offering a positive creative approach, I think that he falls into a rut sometimes. King never said Malcolm has done himself or our people a great disservice. He said that he falls into a rut sometimes. King also didn't say anything about reaping nothing but grief. The comment about fiery demagogic oratory appears earlier in the interview and is not related to Malcolm X. 
King actually said, Fiery demagogic oratory in the black ghettos urging Negroes to arm themselves and prepare to engage in violence can achieve nothing but negative results. The phrase, as he has done, does not appear. Ike tells NPR's Bill Chappelle that fabrications were journalistic malpractice. There's more to it, he says. But what King actually said was that he disagreed with some of Malcolm's views, maybe with many of them, but that he was aware that his way wasn't the only way. And it sounded like he was much more open to exploring that relationship than the Playboy interview made it out to be. He adds that King and Malcolm X were engaged in an awkward dance, but they were listening to the same music. Many historians, journalists, and educators were also struck by the find. As the Boston Globe Renee Graham writes, With Ike's discovery, we must recast our views on how King perceived Malcolm. It's also worth interrogating who most benefited from the manufactured feud and what impact, if any, it had in undermining the civil rights movement. Even before the news broke, scholars have been looking more critically at the relationship between the two leaders in recent years. Perhaps King and Malcolm X were revolutionary sides of the same coin as Peniel Joseph, a historian specializing in the black power movement, told NPR's Terry Gross in 2020. Now, Joseph tells the Washington Post that he's glad Ike is setting the historical record straight. One looming question is what the discovery means for Haley's already complex legacy. His historical novel Roots, 1976, which was adapted into a TV miniseries in 1977, faced accusations of plagiarism and historical inaccuracies. Haley also authored the autobiography of Malcolm X, 1965, ranked by Time magazine as one of 10 nonfiction books that should be required reading. More than 50 interviews with Malcolm X served as source material. Now the news that he fabricated King's quotes should prompt us to scrutinize everything he's written, including the autobiography, Ike tells the Washington Post. There are several photographs that go along with this story. One shows a group of men. There's a police officer, Martin Luther King, the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, and Malcolm X standing next to each other. There's a photographer behind them. The caption reads, The only meeting between Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X occurred on March 26, 1964, at the U.S. Senate. The next photograph is of author Alex Haley. He's holding a copy of his book, Roots. He's smiling, wearing a suit, and talking to a group of people. The caption reads, Alex Haley speaking at the University of Texas in 1980. And the final photograph is of Malcolm X, also known as El-Haj Malik El-Shabazz. He's talking to a lady who's leaning forward, listening to what he has to say. And behind those two are three other people engaged in another conversation. The caption reads, Malcolm X likely at a welcoming event for the African American Students Foundation in 1959 or 60. That was the story. Martin Luther King Jr. never said famous quote criticizing Malcolm X. It was written by Christopher Parker, published May 23, 2023, and I found it at the smithsonianmag.com website. My next reading is an opinion piece. The title is Unsung Exemplars, Black Women in Medicine, 
It was originally published in the St. Louis American newspaper, but I found it at the wordandblack.com website. It was written by Donald M. Suggs and published May 31, 2023. The subtitle is, These Remarkable Black Women Physicians Should Serve as a Powerful Reminder and Great Inspiration for All of Us. In a recent essay, Massachusetts General Hospital physician Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford points out the myriad of ongoing hurdles and inequities that contribute to the underrepresentation of black women in medicine. Dr. Stanford gives voice to the many frustrations that black women physicians like her still face. The deplorable history of black women being disregarded in this country continues in the experiences of many black women in medicine today. These experiences are rooted in the three-fifths compromise. Slaveholding states in the U.S. constitutionally discounted all black persons as only portions of human beings, tallying them merely for congressional representation and taxation purposes. Jasmine Brown, a third-year medical student at the University of Pennsylvania and a former Rhodes Scholar, shares in a new book how black women have fought to become physicians since the Civil War. Through enumerated stories, she recounts the hindrances black women pursuing careers in medicine have faced throughout history. She writes, It is important to understand the barriers black women physicians faced. As more professionals are working to correct some of the wrongs and increase diversity in medicine and research, we need the historical perspective to understand what these barriers are rooted in. Moreover, despite black women's historic activism and prominent social justice movements, Black women continued to experience crippling racism and elitism into the 19th and early 20th centuries. The women's suffrage movement focused on access to the voting booth for white women rather than for all women, a fact that is often ignored or forgotten. It has been black women, long active in the long struggle for justice and equality, whose courageous, steadfast contributions have been largely unrecognized and underappreciated. We see this low regard manifest in the demanding expectations that help perpetuate the daunting constrictions we see for black women physicians. Recent data shows that almost half of medical school students are now white women. Among black matriculants, 60% are women. Nevertheless, only a third of practitioners are women. Further, black women physicians experience bias in medical education, training, and the workforce, Extensions of overlapping systems of oppression and privilege that also fuel unfiltered prejudice from some medical colleagues and patients. Yet, it is widely accepted that black patients have better health results when they are treated by black healthcare workers. There's a direct correlation between health and personal success. Improved representation in healthcare leads to better health and reduced medical costs. All of the black men and women physicians in the U.S. constitute only a meager 5% of practicing physicians, and 53% of that small number are women. This compares with white and Asian women physicians who make up 34.4% and 43% of their respective group's physicians. White women physicians do indeed face well-documented gender-based discrimination from white male physicians who continue to dominate the field of medicine. In their early careers, 76% of white women physicians reported gender-based discrimination, 56.3% during mid-career, and 35.8% in their late career. But they are spared the additional emotional disruption that racial bigotry inflicts. 
American Medical Association immediate past president Dr. Gerald Harmon admits that a shortage of black physicians contributes to poorer health outcomes for black patients. Also, the Association of American Medical Colleges and the National Medical Association, NMA, the most influential black physicians group, have announced a joint initiative to address the dire need for more black physicians by working with black colleges and universities to secure more scholarships. It remains to be seen whether these well-intentioned efforts are sustainable enough to make substantial difference over time. The NMA writes, Academic medicine has a professional and ethical responsibility to educate its trainees and health professionals on the history of medicine, including its ugly side, and to critically examine how historical and contemporary political and social factors have created racial-ethnic health disparities. Until such reckoning, the field of medicine's ability to achieve health equity for all will continue to be futile. The remarkable history of so many strong and credible black women physicians who followed a calling, broke down entrenched racial and gender-based barriers, and paved the way for future generations should serve as a powerful reminder and great inspiration for all of us, those in the medical field and beyond. These esteemed women are powerful exemplars for our community of the power of belief, courage, dedication, hard work, and a passion to serve others. We need to let them know that we are grateful and they are deeply appreciated. That was the opinion piece, Unsung Exemplars, Black Women in Medicine. It was published May 31st, 2023. I found it at the wordinblack.com website, though it was originally published in the St. Louis American newspaper, and it was written by Donald M. Suggs, who is the publisher and owner of the St. Louis American newspaper. The next reading on today's program is a book review. The title of the book review is I Am Deborah Lee a memoir by Deborah Lee. It was written by Robert Fleming and was published by the African American Literature Book Club and its AALBC.com website on March 7th, 2023. Blessed with candor, boldness, and business savvy rarely seen in books of this type, former CEO of Black Entertainment Television Network Deborah Lee has peeled back the secrets of the corporate world in her memoir, I am Deborah Lee. The career journey of this Fort Jackson, South Carolina native rates special attention since she endured several racial and cultural obstacles to rise to the apex of entertainment media. This is one of the most impressive business survivors' tale of purpose, perseverance, and power. The book opens with Lee, following almost a decade of hard work and extra tasks, going to the boss, Bob Johnson, BET's chairman and CEO, to ask for a raise. He had lured her away to join the network as BET's first general counsel, convincing her to take a large pay cut. Her request is denied. In fact, one of the network's board members, Herb Wilkins, says to her, There are a ton of folks who would kill for a job like yours. If you don't like what Bob pays you, then you can probably leave. So Lee departs and her time is over with the network. Raised by a mother who worked as a ward clerk at a black hospital and a career military father with an unfulfilled dream of being a lawyer, Lee wanted to satisfy her parents' goals for her success. The road to the elite post at BET was one of difficulty and blind ambition. 
After graduating from high school, she relocated to the East Coast where she studied at Brown University. In her junior year, she studied political science in Thailand, Malaysia, and Indonesia, majoring in Asian politics. Later, she attended Harvard University, where she earned a M.A. degree in public policy from the John F. Kennedy School of Government and her law degree from Harvard Law School in 1980. Lee gives the best advice for courting success. The trick is to be ready to accept the challenges when they finally reveal themselves, she writes. Don't shrink under the weight of your potential success, because it is heavy. But allow yourself the space to grow into it. Be patient and give yourself plenty of grace as you rack up wins and losses. You'll get there. The next stop is Washington to work as a clerk with the U.S. District Judge Barrington Parker for the District of Columbia. A year later, she joined the ranks of the law firm Steptoe & Johnson as a regulatory lawyer. Five years later, BET's Bob Johnson lured Lee away from her high-paying post to become the network's first general counsel. Throughout the book, Lee writes that the corporate life called for a personality unlike hers. My entire life, I'd been trained to be the best, but not to expect the title, the respect, and the compensation that should come with being at the top of your game. Working hard was supposed to be its own reward. My father, a major in the Army, took great pride in me being nice and always emphasized that I be a good girl, modest, quiet, selfless, which meant doing the work, keeping my head down, and rarely speaking up for myself. The value of this tell-all book is Lee's honest observations of life inside BET, the competitive nature of the male employees, the emotional demands of the work, the pressures of profits over people, the public versus private views of the company officials. She watches Bob Johnson like a hawk. In her opinion, she writes, Bob revved up 31st Street each morning in his black metallic Jaguar shooting in like a bullet. His suits were custom Italian. His initials, RLJ, engraved on the cuffs of his starched white shirts. All that swagger hung in the air, pumping into our office like oxygen. The rest of us took his lead. We all felt it. As a BET official, Lee rubs elbows with the stars of black culture and her relationship with the celebrities lends an inside view of the major personalities of our time. In one show, she negotiates with the songstress Whitney Houston to leave her man, singer Bobby Brown, at home from an all-woman lunch. In another tribute, diva Aretha Franklin wants what she wants, and she wants a full winter wardrobe before she would appear. With the passing years, Lee served as BET's corporate secretary and president and publisher of the network's publishing division, which published Emerge Magazine, YSB Magazine, BET Weekend, and Heart and Soul Magazine. During her time with the network, it earned superior growth in ratings, profits, and popularity. Lee, following protests concerning some of the negative images and music videos aired, transitioned into original content including movies, documentaries, concerts, and news coverage. Concerning her role as one of the country's top female executives, Lee sums up her odyssey. Demanding respect is a practice of self-love, not a problem. In the corporate world, women, black women especially, have to fight for every inch of the space they take up. Following the maxim of BET CEO Johnson, who said, don't reinvent the wheel, just paint it black. Lee embraced the soul and joy of black culture and the community at large. I don't just love black culture. The magic in our hair, the swagger in our steps, the particular way we can say, all right now, to fit our changing moods. Black culture saved me.
In truth, Lee's I Am Deborah Lee reveals the highs and lows of a vibrant black woman at the top of her game in the entertainment industry. All those who wish to explore success in corporate life should read this book closely, acknowledging the marvelous wit and wisdom of an experienced trailblazer. This is a master class on bright feminine choices, practical life lessons, and daring business decisions. That was a review of the book, I Am Deborah Lee, a memoir by Deborah Lee. It was written by Robert Fleming, published March 7, 2023, and it appeared at the website of the African American Literature Book Club, aalbc.com. That's all the time I have this week. If you would like to replay this program or listen to past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcast or at the Audio Reader website at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour. Thank you.